morning to the book of Acts chapter 2. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. We come to chapter 2. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible at the moment, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just flag them and get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand, and that way you can hear the Word of God and you can read it as well. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 2. We'll pick things up in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice, and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon in the blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined, the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Why? The prophetic scriptures said that he wouldn't. And he goes on to quote, For David says concerning him, quoting from Psalm 16, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad, and moreover my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, David wrote, and then here significantly, nor will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to seek corruption. And you have made known to me the ways of life you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore, all of the house of Israel, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing record of the day of Pentecost fully come. And we thank you that it's in your book, not merely as a historical fact, though we would be content with it to have that place in our life if that's all you intended. But it is here to teach us something, Lord, to speak to us of our Savior, to speak to us of your heart. And we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the capacity to learn what it is that is of you that is bound up in these verses and that will outlive the heavens and the earth. Speak to us, Lord, from your throne, through your word, and by your spirit we ask, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I was returning uh, from kind of a missions trip to India, and on our way home from that missions trip, we stopped in Munich, Germany, because otherwise, if you just get on one flight right after the other, at least for me, you get somewhere near the Rocky Mountains at about 28 hours in the air, and you might hurt somebody. And so we learned to get off halfway, get off the plane, get a night's sleep, get back on another plane and come home. And so we'd stopped in Munich. The flight landed early in the morning, and uh, both of us was traveling with a colleague, and we both desperately needed coffee, very, very tired. So we went into this German cafe, and as we went in there, of course, everybody's speaking German, and the man that was at the counter, very full cafe, and he began to speak to us in German. And, uh, well, I knew a little bit of German. I took seven years of German in junior high and senior high. I took two years of German in uh, my senior high and year in high school in, in a moment of insanity. And uh, the German teachers that I had were very strict and very demanding. And so I took uh, two periods of that in my senior year. And why I didn't take Spanish, I kick myself to this day, trust me. But I learned German, so I thought, all right, I'll kick in a little bit of German here. And so I explained to him that we couldn't speak German, we could only speak English. And so uh, he seemed to understand what I said. But then uh, a little woman, unknown to me, probably at least in her 80s and probably in her 90s, and no taller than four foot ten inches, uh, comes up behind me from her seat at, in, in the cafe, come up behind me at the cash register, and I'm feeling this poking in my back. What was bitter cold in the winter, I had on a very heavy jacket. And I turned around, and here she is with a butter knife in her hand, and she's stabbing me in the back. 
And uh, I don't know why she's doing what she's doing. She's just doing it, and she's saying something in German. And uh, the guy asked me if I knew what she was saying, and I understood that much German. And I said, Ich verstehe nicht. I don't understand. He said, Das ist gut. Das ist sehr gut. So I don't know what she was saying about me and to me, but I didn't want to know. And I walked out of the cafe and a little confused at what, you know, the attempted murder that occurred just there <laughs> and trying to figure it all out. And I think that what happened is in my rusty German, instead of saying, I can only speak English, I probably said, I will only speak English. And in her nationalistic pride, this upset her and she was going to come and set me straight. All of this proves the point that James brings out, that for, if we, all stum for we all stumble in many things, but if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. I think it also uh, makes a point about the importance of clarity in communication. And the more important the message, the more critical it is that we be clear in the communicating of that message. And that's why... Bible teachers are continually exhorted, if they continue at it for any length of time, to be clear in the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, one of the things that we hear on a regular basis is that a mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pew. If the preacher doesn't know what he's saying or the teacher isn't clear about what he's saying, then the people have no hope of understanding it. Another thing that we're told on a regular basis is don't teach so that you can be understood. Teach so that you can't be misunderstood. And that's a high standard. It's an important standard, an important standard related to teachers of the Word of God because in teaching the Bible, we're teaching the most important book in the world, the Word of Truth. But then from within the Bible the single greatest message that any human being will ever hear from the Bible, whatever our race, whatever our sex, whatever our background, whatever our socioeconomic level within society, the most important message any of us will ever hear from this book is the gospel, is God's invitation to lost man to be saved to be forgiven of our sins, to be able to then enter into a relationship with God Almighty by putting our faith or our trust in Jesus for that forgiveness. And because eternities are at stake related to what people do with that gospel, it is important that that invitation be absolutely and clear because people's eternities hang in the balance related to it. And here on the day of Pentecost, fully come now, the Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon in the history of the Christian church. And the focus of his sermon is on the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. In fact, it's stronger than that. It means great news, the great news of God to sinful man about our need for salvation and his provision of that salvation. That's the theme, the message that Peter preaches. There's something about this sermon that he preaches that obviously pleases the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is going to add his witness to this sermon, and before it's over, 3,000 people 
are going to end up saved. And so it provides us with very, very valuable insights into the gospel, but it also provides us with valuable instruction to be, for our own sake, for being clear about the presentation of the gospel to our friends, to our family members, to our neighbors, and to the world all around us. Let's set the stage just a little bit or reset it a little bit from verses 1 through 13 within the chapter. There are 120 disciples of Jesus are in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem waiting for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then came upon them from heaven sometime before 9 o'clock in the morning. That baptism with the Holy Spirit occurred in their life accompanied by three very dramatic pieces of supernatural phenomenon. They were, there was the sound of a great wind, tongues of fire sat upon each of them, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. The sound of this great wind, like a thousand locomotives coming from heaven, wasn't just heard by the 120, but it was heard by the people within Jerusalem. And they come uh, in the direction of the noise, and they make their way up these alleyways and these narrow streets and to come to the place of the source of, of all of this sound and this great wind, and, and they, uh, uh, this great crowd then begins to form from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at the time is jam-packed with people because God had declared to the Jewish people and to the men in particular that they were to attend three great feasts in the course of their religious calendar, uh, annual religious calendar. They were, no matter where they lived as a Jew in the world, they were to return to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, for the Feast of Pentecost, which was occurring in our passage here, and then also for the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs in the fall. Well, probably the most significant of the feasts in many respects is the Feast of Passover, but it wasn't always the most heavily attended of the three feasts. The Feast of Pentecost was because Passover occurred in the early spring when it wasn't always safe to take a boat on the Mediterranean Sea yet. The weather wasn't always good for land travel to come from some other part of Asia or the Mediterranean to then come to Jerusalem. Later on in the year at the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurred in the fall, uh, the, the weather and the Mediterranean could, Sea could be just as temperamental in the fall as it was in the spring. So the Feast of Pentecost was the easiest for these pilgrims to get to. And we're told historically that the population of Jerusalem would go from its standard population at the time of 150,000 to somewhere between one and two million people jammed, pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over the world jammed within that city. And so this is the crowd that is there, the density of the crowd that comes now at the sound of that rushing wind. And then they, when they arrived at the upper room, they hear 120 men and women praising God and declaring the wonderful works of God. What's coming out of their mouth is this praise to the Lord declaring how marvelous the God of the Bible is. And this is what they start to hear. But they hear it in the languages of their native lands. What's confusing to them is they look at the 120 and they recognize them to be Galileans. They are from the northern section of Israel. They probably recognize them 
as Galileans because of their dress. The northern section of Israel was the more blue-collar part of Israel. It was the more um, uneducated part of Israel. And so when they see these Galileans, they might have expected 120 Jews from the north, from the Galilee, to maybe be speaking a little bit of Greek, which was the language of the ancient world, a little bit maybe they expect to hear Aramaic, which was the common language of the day, maybe even a little bit of Hebrew, but not Persian and not Cappadocian Greek, and not Akkadian, the language of Mesopotamia, and 16 languages that they're hearing. These uh, 120 declare the marvelous works of God and how marvelous God is. They're hearing in their ears the languages of the lands that they've come from. And the reaction of the crowd was twofold. And there's always a twofold reaction of any crowd of people. We seem to divide pretty neatly into one of two groups when we are confronted with something brand new that we've never been exposed to before. You've got one group that's open-minded about what's happening, and they're open-minded in a healthy way. And so they're curious to understand what's going on here, what are they being exposed to, And then there's another group who will dismiss anything new with mocking. I don't care if they find the cure one day for the common cold, this group will mock it when they hear about it. It's their first instinct related to anything new. There must be something wrong with it. It's new. Let's mock it uh, as our initial response to it. And so some of them mocked and said, these people, this 120, speaking in these languages, praising God in this way, it must mean that they are uh, drunk. And that's the conclusion that they came to, very illogical conclusion, uh, I think, from anyone's life experience, but that's the conclusion that they came to. I don't know how much you've been around drunk people in the course of your lifetime, but... um, How many drunk people have you run into in your life where as a result of their drunkenness they are now able to speak fluently in a language that they never learned before? I'm still waiting for a drunk person to do that. So it doesn't make any sense that this phenomenon is being ascribed uh, to drunkenness. But that was their idea. We tend to have a very uh, sympathetic view of our own ideas. We hold them dear because they are our ideas, and that's what they were sticking to as their conclusion. What they didn't realize is that what was happening here is that God had kind of created a sanctified disturbance in their life in order to get their attention. And sometimes God has to work hard to get people's attention And obviously, he realized even with a religious crowd, and this is a very religious crowd, he's working hard to get their attention because there's something that he wants to communicate uh, to them. So he gets their attention by manifesting these miracles before them. For us in our lives, when he wants to get our attention in order to draw us to God, to get us to think about God and life, these kind of things, and it it can be anything that he might use in life that gets us wondering about life, it gets us asking questions about life. We just start thinking about stuff we've never thought of before. Sometimes the birth of a child will do that. 
where before that child is born, life is one thing. You look at a certain way. You don't even think of certain things. Now there's a responsibility. Now there's all kinds of things that get introduced, and all of a sudden this great event in a human life gets us thinking about life in a way that we haven't uh, done it before. It's a sanctified disturbance so often to bring a person to Christ. Sometimes that sanctified disturbance occurs with the loss of a job or sometimes the loss of a loved one. Sometimes it happens not just in the valley but in the mountaintop experiences of life where we achieve the greatest goal in our life, the one thing that we think, if I can just do this, if I can just attain to this position, that this sense that there must be something more in life will be satisfied, I'll be able to rest you know, comfortably on this great achievement, this great position that I've attained to, and, and, uh, and, 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 and achieve satisfaction within my life. And then what happens to a person is God allows them so often to get to the top of that pinnacle in life that they've been dreaming about, and then once you get to that place, we discover that we're as empty and lonely there as ever we were on the way up that mountain or on the way down that mountain. I think about Joey Baran. He's a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in Southern California, and he's spoken here before. And I remember that he, one time when he gave his testimony, and he was a world-class surfer. And they had the, one year they had the championship, world championships in Hawaii. And, you know, worldwide world of sports is there, which was a big deal. It was the equivalent of ESPN in those days. They're there with the camera crews. Gigantic crowds are out there. The waves are huge. And he catches a perfect wave, and he rides it perfectly, and he wins the championship. And he talks about the fact that there he is on television. He's receiving the trophy and all. He said 15 minutes after they had put that trophy in his hand, the camera crews were gone, the crowd was gone, everyone was gone, and he had achieved the dream of his life. And he sat there all alone, and he was as empty and lonely as he had ever been in his whole life. And it, that experience there was a significant part of what ultimately brought him to the Lord. God got his attention on where satisfaction and fulfillment can be found. Now, Peter in his sermon here, and you notice that it's Peter that stands up to deliver this sermon, and it's a masterful sermon that he delivers. They have come to wrong conclusions about what God has done on the day of Pentecost, and he is going to clear up those misconceptions that they have. The amazing thing about Peter on the day of Pentecost, quite apart from his sermon, it's an amazing sermon, again, as I said, that he preaches, but Peter is the poster child in the Bible for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. When you look at Peter in the Bible before the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, he's an encouragement to people like me, where you say the right thing right here, and two minutes later you say the wrong thing and you're kicking yourself. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he's told that he's going to end up denying Jesus. I'm not going to deny you, though they all deny you. I will not deny you. If they kill me, I will not deny you. And a little maiden comes up and begins to question him about his association with Jesus, and she, he ends up denying and denies the three times. He didn't want to. He was absolutely sober-minded about the commitment that he had made to Christ. I will not deny you. He was willing to do it, but he lacked the power. 
And then here on the day of Pentecost, he stands up, and he's the one that preaches this gospel in a Jerusalem that is as hostile to Christ and as hostile to Christianity as ever it was when Jesus was crucified just 50 days earlier. The apostle uh, Peter here, before the baptism with the Holy Spirit, what he was and what he was afterwards, a dramatic witness to the reality and the power and the beauty of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He didn't become perfect. None of us become perfect as a result of it, but we do receive power. The Holy Spirit comes in us for salvation. He comes upon us for power, for service. Peter began his sermon by answering the questions that the people were asking. And that's a great example for us. And sometimes people, when they're talking to us in life, they don't necessarily answer, ask us a question, but they say something about their life that is readily formed into a question. They've hit, run into a problem in life. They've run into a trial in life, a difficulty in life. They are wondering about what life means or whatever it is, and it's easy to then fashion it into the question that they're asking and then to answer that question that they are asking. And that's the, most, that's the easiest way to open a door up to begin to talk to somebody is what are they thinking, what are they wondering about, and begin there. And the older that we grow in the Lord and the more experience we get, the more we realize that we can take virtually any conversation that is serious and personal in a person's life about needs that they have or things that they're facing and very readily begin to move that quickly toward the Lord and to speak to them about uh, the gospel. I noticed, too, in verses 14 through 21 that Peter then explained to them what they were experiencing from the Bible. And he quotes from the book of Joel, and he quotes a very long section from the book of Joel, which is interesting to me as well. He has no formal theological um, education. He's raised, doubtless, in a synagogue up in the north of Galilee, somewhere around Capernaum there. And, and so he's just a guy that's kind of going to church in those days. He's blue-collar. He's a fisherman. No, you know, four years in a seminary or anything, and yet they begin to ask a question, and he begins to quote this long section of Scripture from a fairly obscure Old Testament prophet of Joel, and the whole realization that each of us, it doesn't matter what our background is, blue-collar, white-collar, whatever education opportunities we have, everyone has the opportunity to go deep in the Word of God and to know the Word of God, to have the Lord bring it to our remembrance. And so he begins to speak to them and quote this very long section from the book of Joel. And as we saw last week, he quoting Joel here, he's giving them a biblical basis for the supernatural events that are occurring before their eyes and before their uh, ears, and that it's a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that of uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that men, women, servants, people who are business owners, whatever we are, regardless of our sex or regardless of our station in life and all, that God was going to baptize everyone who wanted to in the Holy Spirit. And so he speaks to them and gives them a biblical basis for what it is that they're seeing. And then he immediately, in verses 22 through 35, he turn, immediately turns the sermon or the conversation toward 
Jesus. He doesn't talk to them about religion. He doesn't talk to them about church. He doesn't talk to them about denominations or non-denominations. He doesn't talk to them about the 144,000. He talks to them immediately about Jesus. As soon as he can turn this to Jesus, he does that. I don't know about you. you're, You're the same as I am. You have Jehovah Witnesses come to your door on a fairly regular basis and knock on the door, and they'll have a Watchtower magazine and a Wake magazine, and I'm always excited. Sometimes I don't always have enough time to talk as long as I want to when they come to the door, but I'm always excited to be able to get a chance to share with them a little bit. And so they come on the door, and your experience is probably the same as mine, and they talk about how terrible and awful the world is, and it's going in the wrong direction, and is there any hope? And then, uh, would you like to buy one of the magazines and, uh, for any donation that you might, et cetera, et cetera? And there's all kinds of directions. I mean, you can spend a half hour with them talking about how bad the world is getting before our eyes. You can do that with anyone. But of course, when we're sharing the gospel with Jehovah Witnesses, we realize that the great subject matter that needs to be discussed is Jesus. They do not believe that He is divine. But if He is not divine, He is not sinless. And if He is not sinless, then He cannot be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we are all still dead in our sins. So the quicker we can get off of the 144,000 or how bad the world is and get it on Jesus, now we have a chance for something eternal to occur within the conversation. But what is true of Jehovah Witnesses is true of anyone that doesn't know the Lord yet. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one that eternities hinge upon. And so the sooner we can get uh, the, the conversation to Him uh, the better, because that's our, our goal is to get them introduced to him. Then Peter does something that's fabulous, very instructional for us, in that he gave this audience five reasons for putting their faith in Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. This is a very reasonable sermon that he is uh, preaching here by the Holy Spirit. And so he gave them, and as a result, gives us five reasons for putting our faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as our Savior. Number one, verse 22, there's the witness of Jesus' perfect life, his supernatural life. Second, he speaks from that same verse 22, there's the witness to Jesus and the witness and the favor of God the Father upon his life. The miracles, the wonders, the signs of Jesus' life were one of the ways that the Father testified to the fact that Jesus was and is the Messiah. All those miracles that Jesus did, that was the Father's stamp of approval upon Jesus' teaching and upon his life and upon his claims to be the Messiah. There has been no life in human history not in Jewish history, not in world history, that compares to Jesus in terms of the miraculous that surrounded his life and the supernatural. You must do something with that life. The sheer amount of supernatural that surrounded him, the raising of people from the dead, the sheer number of lepers that he cleansed of their leprosy, the sheer number of people that received their sight who once were blind. And John tells us as he finishes his gospel, you ain't seen nothing yet. 
When he finishes the book, he says, I, if we told you everything that he did, the world couldn't contain the books if we tried to explain it to you. There's something about that life of Jesus that speaks to every human being alive today. What do you do with that life? What do you do with the quality of that life? What do you do with the witness? Uh, what do you do with his claims as a result of the life that he lived, not only in terms of being sinless, but in terms of having power that only God, only a creator, our creator could have? And so he speaks to them of this fact. How do we explain his life and his miracles? He spoke it to that religious crowd. He speaks it yet uh, today. And then number three, he gave them the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures in verses 25 through 31. And Peter is very intent upon getting to this place in the sermon, that he is, this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world on the basis of the witness of the prophetic Scriptures. And he, first of all, in verses 25 through 28, he directs them to Psalm 16, a psalm of David, which declared that the Messiah would die, but he would not die long enough for his body to see corruption. In other words, he would end up being resurrected. And so Peter takes them there to Psalm 16, and then later in the sermon, he directed them to another Old Testament psalm of David, Psalm 110, verse 1, a psalm that is so messianic that it's been dubbed the Psalm of the Messiah. And there, G, there Peter revealed that the Old Testament Scriptures not only spoke of the resurrection of Messiah from the dead, but also of the fact that Messiah would ascend into heaven following that resurrection to sit at the right hand of God, with Jesus, which is what Jesus had done ten days earlier than this day of Pentecost. Peter did not, as wonderful as miracles are in getting people's attention, they are not a satisfactory basis for our faith or our trust in anything, let alone our trusting in what we're going to trust our eternities to. So the miracles are wonderful in their own place, but what Peter wants to do is to make sure that their faith is not based supremely upon the miracles of the day of Pentecost, but based rather upon the Word of God. That's the surest thing that we can base our faith upon, the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. And that's why Peter would write in his second epistle and speak of the fact that his faith was in Jesus as the Messiah, called on everyone else to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah based upon what he called the more sure word of prophecy. And so it's important when we talk to people about the gospel to say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, so that when they leave our presence, they don't walk away thinking, well, this is just something curious that they believe. This is just something that they've come up with. But to realize there must be something special about this Bible that they keep quoting as an authority and, and, and as a reason for putting my faith in Jesus as my Savior. Important to get to the Bible. One of the most powerful things a person can do in sharing the gospel 
is if you have a Bible on you at, the, at that moment in time, is to pull it out, take them to the passage, and then let them see it with their own eyes and read it. The Holy Spirit gives power and authority to His Word and for people to see that there is a witness, an undeniable witness of the Scripture to what God is calling you to do and putting your faith in His uh, Son. And then the fourth witness that he calls to to is a reason for putting our faith in Christ in verse 32 is on the basis of the witness of uh, human eyewitnesses. There's 120 people in that upper room, and 120 of them had seen Jesus resurrected. If you take 120 people and you bring them into a court of law and all 120 of them have the same testimony, you've got to give some consideration to those facts. And that's what's happening here. He's saying this testimony of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the witness to by all 120 within this room. And their changed lives were a testimony too. And changed lives among God's people for 2,000 years speak of the fact that Jesus is the Savior and He is the Messiah. And then finally, He calls on them to put their faith in Jesus on the basis of the witness of the presence of the Holy Spirit there in verse 33 as he uh, declares there in that uh, verse, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, poured out this which you now see and hear on the day of Pentecost. Jesus spoke to the disciples in John chapter 16 and uh, before his, his death upon the cross, and he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. How do we know that on the day of Jesus' ascension into heaven, ten days before the day of Pentecost, as the disciples are on the Mount of Olives and they are looking up and they're watching him ascend into heaven until he leaves their eyesight, how do we know that Jesus safely made it into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father? The day of Pentecost, the sending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's good for me to go. When I go and I'm ascended into heaven, I will send a helper. I will send the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, a testimony to the fact that Jesus is not only risen, but ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then Peter, in verses 36 and 37, drove home their guilt before God and their need for a Savior and their need for the forgiveness of God Almighty in a way that they could not squirm out from under in the most powerful way that you could do to a devout Jewish crowd. These people are serious about God. Most of them have traveled halfway around the world to be in Jerusalem in order to obey a commandment from the Old Testament to be there on the day of Pentecost. We're told in the passage that they're devout men. These people are serious. And here is Peter, and he preaches to them of their need for forgiveness and salvation in the most powerful way that he could do to an audience like that. 
when he declared to them, verse 36, that as the house of Israel, they were not only guilty for rejecting their Messiah when he came, but they were guilty of playing a part in his death. And in the light of the case that Peter had just laid for Jesus as their Messiah and a work of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, that light went on for them and it hit them like a ton of bricks. We not only missed our Messiah, we not only rejected him from the vantage point of incredible privilege and light, but we played a part in the death of this Jewish Messiah come to save the whole world. And this is what is known in preaching, but even in sharing the gospel individually, it is known as preaching for conviction, preaching or sharing for conviction. If a person does not recognize their need for forgiveness, then why would they care about forgiveness? If a person does not recognize themselves to be a sinner, then why would they give any attention to God's news is good news that he forgives sinners. So you have to establish guilt in a person's life so that they understand their need for forgiveness and their need for a Savior in order to be forgiven. And Peter drives home that point, that conviction of sin, in a powerful way to this Jewish religious crowd. And this, of course, is the challenge that we face as Christians so often in talking with people about their need for forgiveness in this culture, which is a Western culture. Because increasingly in Western culture and increasingly in the United States of America, sin is being redefined away from the standard of the Bible and away from the definitions of the Bible. And so, as a result, less and less is considered to be sin in the hearts of people, and thus there's less and less conviction concerning sin. I have a friend, and he's retired now, but he started, I think, the first Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas. And uh, when he started that, before he started that church there, he began to learn about Las Vegas, where he's going to move his family there and all of this. And as he got literature from the, um, the city and the Chamber of Commerce and introducing and investigating Las Vegas, one of the claims that they made concerning Las Vegas is that it had the lowest crime rate in the United States of America. We thought that was terrific. And then he moved to Las Vegas. And he discovered the reason that it has the lowest crime rate in the United States of America is because almost nothing is illegal there. So no conviction of sin because of how much you're free to do. And, and yet a terrible place to live in terms of sin, in terms of before the eyes of God and all. But what is true of Las Vegas is also becoming increasingly true on a moral level in our society. And so the conviction of sin, the importance for people to understand and for you to understand if you're not a Christian this morning, 
that when God looks at you, he looks at you and declares you to be a sinner. You've been less than perfect. And your sin has separated you from God. And God is clear on the subject because he needs to be clear on the subject. Three times in the book of Romans, he says it in several different ways. Romans chapter 3, he says, there's none righteous. No, not one. Again in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned. And there's a consequence of it, he says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. There's a consequence to sin that each of us faces and that we need to be saved from, and that is death, eternal uh, death. And so each of us, the Bible teaches, is a sinner, and we're in need of forgiveness from God. And we cannot afford to yield this to the culture because without an understanding of the bad news that I am a sinner and my sin has separated me from a relationship with God and is going to land me in a very terrible place for eternity, then I will never see my need for a Savior or for a gospel. So he preaches this to them, and you see their reaction in verse 37. It says, they were cut to the heart. This hit them full force. Jesus was their Messiah, and they had crucified their Messiah. And this conviction was sudden, and it struck very deeply into their heart. And I don't know if you've ever experienced the Holy Spirit in that way. Literally, the original language is that these words from Peter stabbed them in their heart, in their innermost being. And the light went on, and they couldn't escape the conviction of the Holy Spirit concerning their guilt. And so they did what any honest person would do, but isn't always easy for a religious person to do. But they did it, and you've got to give them credit for that. They then said to Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And the idea is the light's just gone on for us about what we have done here, and is there any hope for us to be saved from our sins. And of course, thankfully, God never leaves a person in that condition, but he now brings them the hope of the gospel. And peace, Peter answers them in verses 38 through 40, and he begins by calling on them to repent in verse 38. And I want to say until my dying breath that repent is not a bad word in the Bible, and it's not a bad word in the human vocabulary, but it's thought of that way. The very first word that came out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry was the word repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus declared that word repent to the human audience, he did not have in his mind in any way that he was delivering something other than great news to the people that he was talking to. And the word repent means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in in life. A change of mind that produces a change of direction. And the word repent is a glorious word. It is a wonderful word for the person who finally wakes up one day and they realize, I don't want to be on this road anymore. I don't like the sins that I'm addicted to. I don't like the person that they're making me into. 
I don't like the person that my selfishness and my selfism on this path is turning me into. Not only do other people not like me, I don't like what I'm becoming. I don't like that this path is taking me further and further away from God, and even though I don't know Him, I can sense it. And one day, a person wakes up and realizes, I don't like anything about this path that I'm on, and I got a real uneasy feeling about where it leads me to. And when you tell that person, repent, and you tell them in that repent that there is another path there is an option to the path that you find yourself on. There's another direction that takes you toward God. There's a path that's holy and a path that's clean and a path that's full of wonder and praising God and being conformed into the image of Christ. And that's good news for a person to hear. It's a wonderful word that Peter uses to that audience and that God calls every one of us to in this entire world and in this room. It is always a privilege to repent. It is a privilege to get off of the path that we were born on and what we then experience on that path and where it is taking us and to get on the path that God wants us on that leads us into a relationship with Him and ultimately into heaven itself. And then you notice in verse 38, he called on every one of them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And this is a Jewish way of him calling on them to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and then to publicly demonstrate their faith by being water baptized. We know from the rest of the teaching of the New Testament that we aren't saved by being water baptized. The thief on the cross was not water baptized. Um, Paul said concerning water baptism, he said, I, he said I'm not ba except for Crispus and Gaius, those are the only two people that I know that I've ever baptized. If baptism was required for salvation, Peter would, I mean, Paul would have been a baptizing machine. And the Bible says that by grace we are saved through faith and not of works. The salvation is a free gift, lest any of us, not of works, lest any of us would boast as a result of it. So there's no, there's no getting baptized in order to get saved. It is what it is in the Bible, our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then publicly demonstrating that faith by being water baptized. And then he told them in verse 38 that if they would do that, they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They would experience a spiritual birth that is more real than the walls in this room, and that is to have God Almighty and the purpose, person of the Holy Spirit come into your life and to experience a spiritual birth and to begin a very real personal relationship with God, the greatest miracle that a person will ever experience. And he exhorted them at length to be saved from this perverse generation. And their response to Peter's call to salvation, verse 41, it tells us there, and with, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. You would have thought that that sermon of Peter would have gone over like a lead balloon in that environment. Again, only 50 days earlier, before a similar 
crowd in a frenzy of both religious and secular man, Jesus was crucified in the city of Jerusalem. And Peter gets up and he preaches to the same crowd in large part that would have been there either for the Feast of Pentecost or they lived in Jerusalem and they saw and they understood what it was that happened there. And he's taking his very life into his hands in order to deliver this message to them. And do you think that the message would have just been mocked and scorned? But it didn't. 3,000 people received that sermon and put their faith in Jesus and entered into the kingdom of God. And everyone has a right to hear that gospel at least once in their life, that I am a sinner, but that God loved me so much that he sent his son into this world to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sin and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day and by putting my faith in, what, in him for what he has done for me that he will come into my life and I will be born again by the Holy Spirit. Everyone has the right to hear about the forgiveness of sins that is found there, the confidence of heaven that is found there, the relationship with God that is found there. And then what a person does with that, we have no control over, but everybody has a right to hear it. And Peter told them the truth about how to be saved. What a wonderful day the day of Pentecost was 2,000 years ago, not only in the baptizing of the Holy Spirit of that 120, but the 3,000 that were saved as a part of the fulfillment of that feast of, of harvest 2,000 years ago. Praise the Lord for the gospel in human history. Praise the Lord for the power of the gospel in the human condition. Praise the Lord for the sacrifice that was required in order to provide us and you and me in this world with good news, not about the economy, but about a greater need in our life, good news concerning the forgiveness of our sins and the possibility of a relationship with God. We get so used to hearing, I think, even unchurched people or people that haven't heard much about Christianity, the Bible, and certainly for those of us who've been around these things for years, we almost kind of cop an attitude that God had to send His Son, that God had to provide a way of forgiveness for us. He did not need to. He did not have to. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, God could have turned his back and went on about his business and left us without one shred of hope in our hearts in the light of our past sin and in the light of who we are and what we know ourselves to be and to leave us without any hope that any of that could change. No, it is a wonderful thing what God has done and providing us with good news to meet the greatest need that we have in our life. And again, the price that he paid and was willing to pay out of his love. 
in order to make it possible. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, the single most important decision that you will make in life is what you will do with Jesus Christ and what you will do with his offer of salvation that he has provided for you. God has done. This is not, okay, this is where they put me in the headlock in the sermon. I have treated you with respect this whole sermon. You have treated me with great respect. Thank you for that. I'm just trying to tell you what your maker and your creator wants you to know. God has done everything he can in order for you to bring you to salvation. But now you must do what you alone can do, and that is to receive his gift of salvation by putting your faith in his Son. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they would love to answer your questions. You're a human being. God knows you. He loves you. He made you. He knows all about you. And they would love to answer your questions and then pray with you to begin a relationship with your maker today by repenting of your sin, wonderful privilege, and then putting your trust in Jesus. And if you do so, you will be born again by the Holy Spirit into the greatest life a person can live in this life to say nothing of the life to come. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the power of the gospel. And most of us in this room, we felt it, Lord, when we finally heard it and were willing to listen. Thank you for its power. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that is found in it. Thank you for the relationship with you. Thank you for a new nature to take us, Lord, and to a life that we could have never dreamed of. And Lord, we thank you as Christians in this room this morning that that miracle is not our miracle alone, that millions and millions and millions and millions and untold millions around the world, from every class, every race, every sex, every, 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 you got through to them too so that they might experience the same glory that we do. And we thank you for the power of the gospel, Lord, to do what it has done in us. From the bottom of our hearts, we thank you that you provided us and this world with good news when you didn't need to. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being the kind of God that thinks about that and then does that. We give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.